Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. We're continuing our series called Baywatch, which um, if you were here the first week, we started at kind of an unorthodox route, actually. We started with attraction and intimacy, which is, is actually the foundation of, of all relationships. Whether you are single, married, whether you have friends, family, uh, really anyone, God calls us to be intimate, which means to be close with people in such a way that we bear one another's burdens, that we are able to be fully uh, honest and transparent with people. And uh, so that was our first week. Last week was also another interesting week where we talked the entire time about the gift of singleness. And if you've ever maybe thought most people don't think of singleness as a gift, in fact, most people think of it as a curse or a plague that they're trying to get out of. And uh, so if you, if you missed that, you should go back and listen, because was, that was one of my favorite weeks, I think, yet as a church. Um, but this week specifically, we're talking about marriage. And what's unique about marriage is that uh, it's something that I feel like a lot of times people don't really care about until they're in it. For instance, like I never read a marriage book until, I don't know, we were about to be married in like three months and I had to read it uh, for our premarital counseling. But I was never like, yeah, I'm going to pick a marriage book. Like it just didn't, I didn't even think it mattered. When, when churches would do marriage series, I would be like, well, I guess I'll go somewhere else for a few weeks. Like I just really thought it didn't matter. Uh, I remember being a youth pastor and my, my boss, my lead pastor at the time would be like, hey, you know, you need to teach on marriage. And I'm like, these kids are 14. Like if they're getting married soon, we have a problem. Uh, and, and he would keep telling me, like, marriage is something that the Christian church that it holds a sacred value on, that regardless if you're married or not, like, it is a, a theology, it is an understanding of God that we all have to understand. And I'm not just saying that so you all be interested, because I know sometimes people are like, be interested even though this isn't in your life right now. But, but I think about in the same way that singleness is a gift and that we should, as a body, encourage those who have that gift, whether it's currently or maybe permanently— um, the same goes with marriage. People who are married, whether you are or your friends are, uh, you're, you're called to be a church that, that helps them steward that gift, that helps them um, show the love of Jesus through their marriage. So I feel like I, with that perspective, um, it's helped me understand the depth of marriage. Now, the biblical response or understanding of marriage is way different than the culture. In fact, um, I don't know if you've been reading about a lot of the legislation that's been talked about in the last few weeks, but there's, there, we're on the precipice of a very huge, massive change, potentially, with the church, with the government, um, with marriage and what that means. And uh, interesting enough, the Bible can be a little bit elusive about uh, what is marriage, what does it mean, what's the purpose, what does it look like? And, uh, and so I want to talk about some of those things today. If you remember the first week, I talked about uh, the book of Song of Solomon, or known as, also known as the Song of Songs. If you've read that book, you probably had no idea what it was saying, or you thought it was a little bit like R-rated, you know? It's pretty, pretty intense. Um, and the first week I talked about, we went through several, several verses of it, and uh, I talked about how like, their love for each other was God-sanctioned, that they were attracted to one another, and it was pure and holy and positive. Uh, and then we got into some weird symbols and I thought I, I, I didn't get to show you a photo that I talked about, and I, I feel like I have to do it today. Um, so the symbols that they use are so contextually different than today. That this is what the photo would look like of the woman that he was talking about. He says, your eyes are like doves, your hair is like a flock of goats, your teeth are like a flock of uh, ewes, right? You say, well, ewes? Anybody have a ewe? No? Okay, just checking. 
Uh, your lips feel like a scarlet thread. Your temples are like a slice of a pomegranate. Love that. Your neck is like the Tower of David. Your breasts are like two fawn gazelle. Uh, and then the, go to the other two. I, there's two other ones, I think, or maybe one other one. This was a pretty good one. I really like the tower here. It's got some windows. The teeth are rough. The teeth are really rough. But uh, so you read this, and you read this, this like supposedly holy scripture, and you're like, what do I do with this? Like, honestly, you know, we, re- we read that, and we're like, what do we do with this? And in the same way, I think marriage, even though I read it sometimes, and I'm like, oh, it's, it's blunt, it, it's, it's obvious, it's actually more cryptic than we realize, because a lot of times people take the cultural differences at the time, and they, they use those as a weapon against the biblical implications on marriage. And so today I want to unpack kind of two really predominant uh, instances of marriage. The first one's in Genesis 1, so if you have your Bibles your, or your phone, you will not have to scroll far at all, because we'll be in Genesis 1. We've actually been here, uh, I think in week one, and potentially, I think I mentioned it last week, and it's kind of because it's a big deal. Genesis 1 through 3 sets the foundation for the entire Bible, and uh, whether or not we talk about like creation itself and how everything happened and how long one day was and all those type of things, the, the reality of marriage and community and companionship is first found in Genesis 1. So in verse 26, this is kind of the first instance we have of humankind is what is said here. Verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us, which is weird if you're wondering, okay, wait, God is us. This is where God is triune, which is a churchy word to describe the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're all one together as a community. Um, the phrase that we use is they're distinct persons in the Trinity because they're not all separate, but they're also not connected as like one three-headed dragon. So the best way we describe it, the most biblical way, is distinct persons. So just, I, I could do like a nine-week series on that, so just trust me on that. We can come back to that some other week, or you can email me. Uh, let us make humankind in our image after our likeness so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air over the cattle. Don't we love that? I love good steak. Over all the earth and over all the creatures that move on the earth, God created humankind in his own image, in the image of God. He created them male and female. He created them. 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and every creature that moves on the ground. Now, this, this is like really actually really, really important the way this is written here. And, and that's why I want to say our, let us make them in our image. The Trinity is three distinct persons that are all intimately connected and one. And the idea of community that we have as a body of Christ, as, as believers, as humans, even the, the want to be in community, not be lonely, uh, is, is, is coming from the Trinity. It's coming from their own community. One of my, uh, one of my, authors that I love to read, his name's Henry Now, and he talks about it like a dance. Like the three are kind of in this interwoven dance together where they all are showing off each other like in beautiful parts, but they're all inter- interconnected. And the, so the Trinity represents this beautiful, beautiful community. And in marriage, it's the same way. If you look down to chapter two, it's a little bit farther down in verse 18. Chapter two, verse 18, it says, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a companion in for him who corresponds to him. Now, what's interesting is it's not good for man to be alone, meaning that loneliness, being all by yourself, is not good. I think any of us would, even if you're introverted, extremely introverted, you would probably say that you would rather have a friend or two than no friends at all and never talk to anyone. In fact, 
uh, there's statistics that show that infants actually can die if, they are ne- if they're not held. Meaning like if you dropped an infant on and it, and, and an orphanage and they're not held enough, that can actually cause physical damage to their growth. It can actually stunt their growth and actually cause death. And I, I, that, that statistic is so interesting because I think it just shows the tangible reality of the need for one another, regardless of, of a, a wife or a husband. Because if you realize, I, never, I, don't know if you, I don't know if you ever noticed this, but God says this, and, and then what does he do? He basically gives Adam all these different animals. He's like, hey, go name them. Like, go hang out with them, whatever. And after hanging out with all the animals, he says that basically none of these are meeting the standard. He says, sorry, if you love dogs, dogs are great. God's like, didn't meet the standard. And he says, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a companion that corresponds to him. Corresponds to him. That's, that's the reality of humanity. Now, we, we take this passage and we see Adam, man. We see Eve, woman. And we, we really only talk about marriage, which it is a marriage. But the idea is that humans are better together. That we are not to survive and thrive in loneliness, but that we're in, here to be intimate uh, in community, and that was the first week that we talked about. But what's unique here is this idea of a companion who corresponds to him. Maybe your, your Bible translation might say several different words. It's, it's been kind of debated on what that word actually means, but the Hebrew word is actually the word ezir. I don't know if you've ever heard that word, ezir, uh, but what it means is helper. But helper is actually not even really helpful because we think of helper, we think of like a, like a, you think of like a Sunday school teacher and then they have their helper and you're like, the helper is not very powerful. They basically just do whatever the teacher tells them, like, right? Like, or if you're an intern or an apprentice, like you just think, oh, I just get coffee and like, I don't really have a say in the things that go on. But the helper in, in uh, the Hebrew used here is the same role that's used in the Holy Spirit's role. Now, I don't know about you, but Jesus, whenever he was talking about him having to die and leave so that something much better, the advantage, would come. The advantage was the Holy Spirit. So whether we believe it or not, we are um, uh, American evangelicals, which means that we sometimes don't like to talk about the Holy Spirit very much. In fact, some of us might have been like, wait, there was God the Father and Jesus, and then who's that third guy? The Holy Spirit. Uh, And the Holy Spirit has that same verbiage. So if we understand the Trinity, you're all in this dance together, and one of them is named the helper. Can you see how clearly when God is orchestrating this relationship between man and woman, how much it echoes the community of the Trinity? And I, you know, when I was younger, I was kind of like, okay, cool. Like, why does that matter? Like, it's not really that important, but we're, we're image bearers. He says that we are image bearers. Let us make them in our image. And so when we're in relationships, we are basically echoing and showing the Trinity. We're showing the beauty of community. God in the Trinity is the most perfect depiction of community, of relationship. And we get the opportunity to basically like try and show that and reveal that to not only ourselves, but to the world. So if, if you look at it like this, this is how similar it is. The Trinity is three distinct persons, right? Like I said, all intimately connected and one. Marriage is two distinct persons, intimately connected and one. Do you see how similar that is? And that's, that's the foundation that we have of marriage. Now, if we take that into a cultural lens, it's kind of wild. In fact, when the Bible was written uh, for several hundreds of years, depending on what culture you were in, uh, it could have been a heavy patriarchal society, meaning women, unfortunately, weren't really even considered equal. They were considered property. They were more like, uh, they were used in political moves with different nations and tribes. 
they did not have the same value. Or there was other instances where maybe in the Greek culture that women were actually highly elevated and they had a lot of independence. And in today's world, we, we believe, and I hope all of you do in America does, that women and men are equal. And that in a marriage that we have this equal say in the relationship. But there's no shortage of differences that we have to deal with, that the cultural assumptions that we have been ingrained into ourselves. Maybe you've heard of uh, traditional Mormons and how they have several wives. Maybe you've heard of the show Sister Wives. And we, we kind of just immediately balk at that. And we immediately say, like, that's crazy. That's wild. But have we actually ever, have we actually learned the history of it? Have we actually learned the history of our parents being married? I would say most of you probably don't have a very good historical understanding of marriage. Most of what you know is probably your parents and maybe your grandparents. And that's if your parents have a solid marriage, right? They might be divorced. Uh, or if your grandparents, right? So we don't have this massive array of solid biblical understanding of marriage. In fact, most of the time, it's the culture. It's movies plus a little bit of the Bible. It's movies plus like our one friend we see at church. Like we blend all of these together and we try to make this marriage and then we try to explain what it means and I think we get really lost and misunderstood. So in verse 20, it says, the man named, this is chapter two, verse 20, the man named all the animals, the birds of the air, the living creatures, but for Adam, no companion who corresponded to him was found. Nothing was fit for Adam so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. Um, and then he basically, the Lord creates Eve, a woman. And verse 24 and 25, that's where we'll uh, end it here. Verse 24 and 25, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and unites with his wife and they become a new family. The man and his wife were both naked, but they were not ashamed. If you remember, Week one, I said that this verse, verse 25, they're both naked and not ashamed, is the culmination of the entire creation narrative. It is God creating such a world that's so beautiful and it's so built upon his peace, his love, his, his creativity, that we have the ability to be fully one with one another, Adam and Eve, without any sort of sin or adulteration of God's reality. And that is the culmination. I mean, right now, if we were all naked, it'd be really weird and really awkward. And even though their culture is like, it's, they value it differently, but nakedness, regardless of physicality, but nakedness in our soul, our hearts, our emotions is something to be terrified to give to people. But in the garden, it was your default. In fact, when Adam and Eve sin, what do they do? They hide their nakedness. They use God's stuff. They use creation that God had created for good. And they use his stuff to hide physically from him. And that's our reality now is we, we're trying to create this marriage in our life, right? That if you are married or you're thinking maybe you're on the precipice of that, that is being able to showcase the beauty of the intimacy that God calls us to in the midst of a world where all we want to do is hide and cover up with God's stuff. And that's the reality that we live in now. So I feel like Genesis 1 and 2 and even Genesis 3, like we have to have this foundation because we have, we have to realize like what was God's original intent? What was the design? Because he wasn't just haphazardly doing things. Uh, I think it's almost funny that he like had all these animals and let Adam go try to be friends with them and see how it worked. And he's like, oh, it didn't work out. I guess I'll create a woman. Like, it's just funny that he did that. But that purpose of that is showing like the, the weight that we have as humans on earth and the weight that God has in marriage. So now we're going to flip to Ephesians 5. This is in the New Testament. So that was the beginning of the Bible. Ephesians 5, definitely toward the back. Uh, this is in the New Testament. And Paul gives what I would say probably, 
don't know, one of, the, one of the most common passages about marriage. This might not be the wedding passage. If you've been to a wedding or two, there's a couple that are very common. Um, but this one is, is, is a bit unique, but really, really important. So Paul, we remember Paul is an apostle. He's a follower of Jesus. As uh, I can set up here earlier um, in the book of Philippi, he's writing to all these different churches. Well, in Ephesians, he's writing here because their idea of marriage was extremely permeated by the culture. In fact, uh, in, in Ephesus, the temple, there was a big temple at the time um, for the god of Artemis. And uh, it was women, women ran, basically. So like all the, the, the priests were priestesses. Is that right? Priestesses. And they, they were women reading the temple. And so uh, gender roles in here were very rampant and different than other cultures, other cities. And Paul writes a very unique letter here about the roles of marriage. But we have to realize that, that, that Paul is only echoing what Jesus has said prior, before this. And what's so unique about it is we talked about last week how Jesus was talking to his disciples um, about the eunuch. I don't know if you guys remember, and some of you were like, I didn't even know what a eunuch was until last week, and now I'm like, whoa, that's crazy. But he talks about the, uh, this eunuch, and um, because people are trying to test him about divorce, these religious leaders, uh, they're trying to test Jesus and basically say, hey, is it lawful to divorce your wife for any cause? And they're trying to catch Jesus because they think they can pin him based on his answer. And Jesus, and Jesus replies, he says, have you not read that from the beginning, the creator made them male and female? And he said, and he quotes, for this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother, the two will be united and the two become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. He, he quotes creation. Jesus is always bringing it, bringing it back to creation. In fact, Paul, when we're gonna read him in a second, he brings it back to creation. And so Jesus says, therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And so they're like, what about Moses? He gave, he gave us a certificate of dismissal to divorce someone. And uh, Jesus basically talks about, he says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of your hard hearts. And so then the disciples are listening to all this. And then my favorite line, they say, if this is the case of a husband with a wife, it is better not to marry. And that's the reality of the weight of marriage. Jesus does not actually make it easier when he, when he comes and he's talking about the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking about the way of his kingdom, the way that Jesus followers live their life. It's actually much harder. It's way harder than the law originally because it's not just the external things you do and you don't do, which is what we always think of. Like, I did this bad thing. I'm doing this good thing. But he says it's much deeper. It's actually in your heart. And so he says divorce even, even in your heart. And so he, he, he makes the, the, the playing field even more difficult. And you're like, well, that's discouraging. Thanks, Jesus. But Jesus comes and he knows we can't make that standard. And that's the sacrifice that he gives for us is he, he removes that from us. Now, the law and what he's, he's bringing onto the earth and to the people is though our, our living, it's our standard of life. It's our living and our, um, our culture. So Paul now is writing in Ephesians 5. Just want to give you that foundation. In Ephesians 5, verse 22. Ephesians 5, verse 22. He says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body, but as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to sanctify her by cleansing her with the washing of the water by the word, so that he may present the church to himself as glorious, not having a stain or wrinkle or any such blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. 
For no one has ever hated his own body, but he feeds it and takes care of it, just as Christ also does the church. For we are members of his body. And here we go, verse 31. For this reason, a man will leave his wife, or sorry, his, his father and mother, and will be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. He says, this mystery is great, but I'm actually speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each one of you must also love his own wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now, this is a really unique passage. In fact, uh, to be honest, like, if you posted this publicly, I think you'd actually have a lot of people that are like, awesome, and you'd have a lot of people that are like, what is this? It feels archaic when you read it a little bit, and I, I'm honest about that. In fact, I have lots of friends who, you know, we, we read stuff like this, and they have a really hard time with it, because this idea of submission is like a, it almost causes you like, like, like goosebumps. You're kind of like, ugh. Uh, in fact, many of you have been a, like, uh, recipient of abuse um, from a male, whether it was in a relationship with you, whether it was your dad or an uncle or a friend. Um, honestly, the whole world is full of men who are abusive. And so when we read this, I, it's like hard to read it without feeling the weight of that. There's many scriptures in the Bible like that. In fact, Sarah was talking about how she'd read scriptures on divorce and you almost just kind of want to act like it's not there. You almost just want to cut it out. Or you just say, you know what? I'm done with the whole thing. I just can't do it. It's not, it's not palatable. It doesn't feel culturally relevant. It doesn't feel attainable. And so we read this and I like, you, you almost first glance, you don't even want to read it because you're like, I don't want to talk about submission. I don't want to talk about headship. I don't want to talk about all this kind of stuff. But then we actually get to what Paul's getting at here, and it's actually an incredibly beautiful thing. But the problem is, like I said, we're allowing culture to dictate our view of Scripture whenever we need to see this for face value, and then we react from that into culture. And so one of the most unique things that we see here is this marriage relationship. It's really confusing, actually, and it's, it's kind of weird at first, is the man is a groom, the woman is a bride, and then there's this direct symbol or parable of Jesus being the groom and the church being the bride. And so it's like weird because you're like, okay, Jesus is a dude. The church is full of men and women though. So it's kind of weird that we're his bride. Like all, all followers of Jesus are his bride. But, but reminder, back to Genesis 1, what was the point of Genesis 1? Man was lonely. God wanted man to experience community like God was in community with the Trinity. And so he creates a person, a companion, a helper, and is there, a human, and, and in that relationship, they're able to not only be in community, but they're able to show the intimacy and the love of God through their marriage. Everything that God does is so purposeful. We don't even realize it. And, but when we talk about the word marriage now, like I said, we, we try to like bring that into an idea of marriage. And we're still like, yeah, it doesn't really compute in the world today, though. There's like seven different types of marriages you can get. It, it doesn't seem to be natural. And, and even in different countries right now, there's tons of laws on who can get married and who can't and what it means. And in fact, I, we just had a, someone over for dinner um, last night, a neighbor, and uh, he's uh, half Persian and half um, Turkish. And he was talking about how, I was talking about how I had some Saudi Arabian friends in, in um, college. And he was talking about how most of the guy, buddies that he knows that are Saudi Arabian have arranged marriages still to this day. And, and so we think about that. We're like, what? It's crazy. So marriage is like, we talk about it here and you don't realize how many things are combating. You're just reading this for what it says. And so it's, it's talking about this marriage, this, this bride and groom. And so in this instance, Paul is playing this directly into Christ in his church. Now, what that means is, he, he unfortunately, I say this unfortunately, because he calls men 
to be Christ, which in my opinion is the much harder role. <laughs> Would you rather be Jesus or a bunch of people at a church? And he calls men to be like, hey, you need to be like Christ in your marriage. And I don't know about you, but I probably failed within 10 seconds of our marriage. In fact, our wedding day was a little, a little rough. I was very emotionally unavailable. And so I failed that almost immediately. <laughs> um, which should have taken communion a bunch, I guess. I don't know. But, uh, you know, my call is to be like Christ to my wife. Now, that is an incredibly lofty thing. Now, think about it like this, though. Women, and I think this is kind of weird, but I, I like to go with it. Uh, imagine if you were married to Jesus. Imagine just for a second, Jesus was here today, and he's like, I want you, and you get married. What kind of husband do you think he would be to you? I mean, honestly, like, what do you feel like your home would feel like? In what ways do you think Jesus would develop intimacy with you? How would he love you in your insecurities, your trauma, your baggage? What type of decisions would he make financially, practically? Would you trust in him if he feels you need to move or maybe give away your car or tons of money? I feel like that would happen. <laughs> would you trust him if he rebuked you, if he called you out on something? If he's like, hey, put your phone down, be present or whatever. We're not going to watch this. Or we're not going to do that. Or, hey, I want, I want to do this. Like, seriously, well, how would you respond? Now, I, I was thinking about this, trying to put my mind in the woman here, as a woman here, so bear with me. But I was thinking, okay, it would be perfect, but it would also be terrible because it would be perfect because Jesus is great and awesome. He'd be the best spouse ever. It would also be terrible because you would feel like, wow, I'm never living up to that. Like, it would almost feel overwhelming to be married to someone who's perfect. In fact, in some marriage relationships, a lot of their strife is that one of them feels like they're more um, valid or more secure, or maybe they have more, um, less baggage or they're more charismatic, and they actually, that causes them to feel less because of it. But when we think about being married to Jesus, I think about how it isn't the love that we always want, but it's the love that we need. And so as a man, when I'm married and I'm thinking, okay, I need to be Jesus, there's times where maybe I'm like, I think we, I think we need this and we need to put away what we want. But the, the difficulty with this passage, the difficulty with marriage in general is that our world is full of tons of men who don't believe this and don't lead like this. And no wonder it's chaos and no wonder it's terrible. And I don't want it either. And so we read marriage and we almost like take the good ideas out of it. And then we're like, well, I'm just going to do what is good for us though, because I've seen enough damage done in the world with this. Uh, and I don't want any, really anything to do with it. And what I think it is, I think it's actually a call to something much greater. I think about what is the vision for marriage? Because a lot of times we, we're, in, we're so present and like we're tunnel visioned. We're only looking a few feet ahead. But if we take what, what Christ's marriage to the church looks like, and that's our goal in our earthly marriage, it's the most exciting journey and adventure possible. Because the, the love that Christ has for the church is completely unconditional. It's not contingent on anything you do. Even though you might be like, I'm broken and I'm the worst and I have tons of baggage. And if, oh, you only knew what I did. If I, and even maybe you walked in here feeling that this weekend, this week, I don't know, that Christ is like, yep, still want you. Can you imagine being married to someone like that? That would change the world. That would change the way that you loved others as well. In fact, one of the books I've been reading with a couple people right now is called Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. And, uh, and he talks about how you lead out of your singleness and you lead out of your marriage. And when he talks about leading out of your marriage, what he means is if your marriage is great, you're going to love other people really well. Because that's, that's the love that you're able to kind of feel and experience and, you, and you, you give that to others. And we know it's the opposite is true. If your marriage is terrible 
If it's riddled with abuse, it is infectious to the people around you. Some of you have experienced that as being kids raised in that. It's really, really hard. So that we want, if we filter the idea of submissiveness, the idea of, of that, and trust into a husband that is trying, is Jesus, or trying to be like Jesus, I actually think we have a beautiful thing. In fact, someone once called it a sign and a wonder to the world. And you think about that, and you think about the idea that your marriage can be just as drastic in someone's life as Jesus healing someone of blindness, or healing a leper who is culturally unclean, or casting out a demon in someone's life, that your marriage has the, the, the ability to do that. Isn't that something crazy? I mean, I've seen it. I've heard it. I've, under, I've heard people who be like, yeah, I just didn't know what it was, but these people just like were so selfish. They loved each other so well, and I just I couldn't understand it. Because everybody knows everybody's broken. We all act like we're not, but we are. And when you get two broken people together and they get married, you're going to have a ton of chaos. <laughs> and it's called, our, you know, it's called our first year of marriage, our first three years maybe. <laughs> But uh, you get two broken people together, and it's just, it's a mess. But then people see you constantly serving one another, loving one another, submitting to one another, as, Christ, as, as the church does to Christ, and it's this beautiful thing that is a sign and wonder for the church. So the, so the first thing was, we're actually called to submission, just as a wife's called to submit to her husband, a husband is called to submit to Christ. The second thing is that a man is called to love his wife, as Christ loves the church, which I've said is a very lofty goal. But to be honest, I think men need to step up to the challenge. In fact, one of Jesus' last nights on earth, what he did to lead was he became a servant. He didn't tell the disciples, hey, I'm making this call and you just got to deal with it and uh, you got to submit, so sorry. What he did was he gathered them all around and he washed their feet. And he took bread and he said, I'm doing this for you. And that's what he did on his last day on earth. So if we are, as men, called to lead the same life in our marriages, that is our posture. is one of service, one of humility. That's a beautiful thing. I think people can get behind that. And the third is the wife is to submit to Christ as her husband. And I think when we think about Jesus' relationship with each one of us individually, we think about the beauty of him accepting us I think wives have the opportunity to speak into marriage in such a beautiful way um, because it fully echoes that relationship of Christ and the church. And that word azir at the beginning, the helper, is not in any way belittling nor, nor arguing for inequality between men and women, but it's empowering women in their role and their ability to be able to love well and, and honestly show Jesus to people in their marriage. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.